Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 and then focusing on verse 13. Years ago when I was in the Air Force, I came home. We were, I was only 100 miles away from home, my hometown. So I'd usually go home on weekends and my sister invited me to a Bible study. First time ever I went to a Bible study. And a friend picked her up, a couple friends, and the guy that was driving the car, I recognized him. He was a guy that was in my high school. He was a senior when I was a junior, and now we were out of high school. So I recognized him. But I noticed he was different. He was different, and I, and I could tell. He had a, a smile on his face. What happened? <laughs> he had a smile on his face. He had a, a calmness. He had a peace. There was something different about him, and what he had, I wanted. I wanted. Last week, last Sunday, we talked about Romans 1, 16 and 17, how the Apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we learned last week that the gospel is the only thing that can change a person's heart. It's the only thing that can take a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. It's the only thing that can take a heart that is spiritually dead and make it spiritually alive. And we have the tremendous privilege each day to proclaim this gospel to those around us and to see their lives change forever. But before we can say one word, before we can say one word to the world, the world needs to see us as different, as the salt of the earth. Like I saw in my friend, Ron. Let's look at Matthew 5. This is the word of God, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now notice, go back to verse 13. Notice the personal pronoun, you. In the Greek, this word is in the emphatic form. So it could be translated, instead of the way it's translated, it could be translated, you yourself are the salt of the earth. Or you yourself alone are the salt of the earth. Now Jesus here is speaking to his disciples that were there, but he's also speaking to us, his, his future disciples. And what he's saying to us is that we are the only hope for this world. You know, the world hopes in all kinds of things. The world hopes in presidents, in government, in large budgets, in higher education, uh, in large insurance policies. But the only hope for this world is God working through his people to be the salt of the earth. Now notice the second word in this verse. It says, you are the salt of the earth. This, this verb stresses being instead of doing. So it's saying this, we're not commanded to be the salt of the earth, but we're told as Christians we already are the salt of the earth. Um, all Christians who are living obedient lives to God show forth in differing degrees because of our different levels of sanctification the Beatitudes in our lives. And what are the Beatitudes? I just read them to you. A Christian who is poor in spirit because, and mournful because he sees his sin and is meek and merciful, a peacemaker, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, pure in heart. A person that's like that will be such an enigma to his society, to those around him. He'll be so different from them, like my friend Ron was, that I said, something's wrong, something's different about this guy. And we have an impact then. By being the salt of the earth, Christians are a preservative and a flavoring for their society around them. So let's first look at salt being a preservative. Salt in the first century was mined near the Dead Sea. And I've been to the Dead Sea two times in my life. And it's amazing. Because when I first pulled up, we pulled up in a bus, and I was looking out over the Dead Sea, and you see people floating. But they're not on any kind of air mattresses or, or, or inner tubes or anything, they're just floating. And some of them are sitting there reading the newspaper. It's amazing how buoyant they are because of the salt. But salt was extracted out of the Dead Sea. It was put into pits next to the Dead Sea, and the water evaporates, and then the, the pit is filled with salt. And salt in biblical times was an expensive commodity 
And Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt. Can you imagine that? Being paid with a bag of salt. And that's where the saying came from, he's worth his salt. Well, in the first century Palestine, there weren't many refrigerators around, of course. So the only way to keep meat was to use salt as a preservative. Salt was rubbed into the meat. And the only way that it worked is it had to come in direct contact with the meat. You know, wax on, wax off, right? One author says this, When Jesus called us the salt of the earth, he made a strong judgment about society and a lofty claim about what his disciples can do about it. You don't salt something that's alive. You salt something that's dead to keep it from rotting. Jesus is saying that our society, without his influence, is a carcass that is rotting away and disintegrating. We'll quickly say amen to that, but what about this? As his disciples were to be rubbed into that rotting mass to season it, delay decomposition, and to save it from falling to pieces under its own wickedness. Wow. That is what we're called to do. And you know, one great example in the Bible of somebody who did that was Daniel. You remember Daniel? The life of Daniel? Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. by the Babylonians. Remember that? And he was taken captive and he was put into Nebuchadnezzar's court. And he was trained in the Babylonian ways and the Babylonian language and all of the things that the Babylonians did, right? And, and he would not eat the king's choice food. So he decided to eat vegetables. He asked if he could do that, and he did. And he was better, more wisdom, more healthy than all the other subjects that were there. And he ended up on the king's court, right? And he had a major influence on King Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, by his example as the salt of the earth. And then later, by his words. And if you go and look later on, at Daniel chapter 4, you will see that this ruthless king, the one that could take anybody's head off at just the mention of his word, becomes a believer. Amazing. All through the ministry. All through the ministry of Daniel. And Daniel being a preservative for his society. Well, just as Daniel was a preservative, we need to do that also. And I remember years ago when I was in the Air Force, or after the Air Force, um, I went to Bible college here in Columbia, South Carolina. And in the summertime, I worked at Farron's Sign Shop. And I remember working at this sign shop, I worked with a guy named Jack. And Jack was an older guy, he's probably in his 50s, um, now he's a younger guy. He was older back then. But Jack did plastic letters for signs. And he taught me how to do this stuff, you know? So I was carving out letters and putting the siding on them to put on signs. And I, I kind of liked it, uh, but Jack said, uh, don't lose your day job, Mark. Like Joe always does to me. He says, uh, he kept saying... Stay with the preaching, Mark. 
They all kidded around with me because I was going to Bible college. They called me the preacher man when I had never preached a sermon in my life. But they called me the preacher man. And you know what the thing I noticed about them was all the guys in this shop, um, when they would cuss or when they would say God's name in vain, they would look at me and go, oh, sorry. And, and I was sitting there and think to myself, why are you apologizing to me? You know, you don't need to apologize to me. You need to, you need to talk to God about this. I didn't say that, of course. But you know what I thought of after a while, after they kept doing this, you know, and making fun of me and calling me the preacher man and all that stuff and saying I couldn't do any plastic work. Um, what, I, what I started noticing was, hey, God's using me here as a preservative. And, and they're, they're noticing my life. And then later on, guess what? It, it opened up the door for opportunities to share the gospel. So my question is for each one of us here is how is God using you as a preservative? Where you work, where you live, where you shop, where you go to school. You know what? I, I saw a number and it blew me away. Do you know that only 40% of Andersonians go to church? I mean, we got a church on every street corner, don't we? Only 40% go to church. 60% don't. And then, I don't know what the number is, but probably, let's say, 50% of that 60% may never go to church. Never! You're the only church they're ever going to see. Do you ever think about that? When you're at work, when you're at school, when you're shopping, you're the only church they're ever going to see. So what are they going to see? What are they going to see? Remember, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, what we've seen so far is, as salt can be used as a preservative, it also can be used as a flavoring for society. You know where I took my wife on our first date? The dollar movies. Big spender. We went in a Plymouth scamp, a 1975 Plymouth scamp held together by duct tape. And after that wonderful first date, by the third date, guess where we went? I splurged. We, instead of going to Little Caesars, we went to Pizza Hut. Big bucks, right? But when we went to Pizza Hut and they delivered the pizza to our table, we noticed one thing that showed that we were destined to be together because when that pizza was delivered, we both reached for the shaker of salt to put on pizza. Kind of strange, huh? Does anybody? How many put salt on pizza? Not many. Okay, I figured that. <laughs> um, the amazing thing about salt is that it can even add spice to a spicy pizza. And the only way that salt can add flavor to other foods is because of the vastly different properties than the food that it's seasoning. 
One writer says this, Our society today has an overpowering taste of evil in it and will only be flavored by the vastly different properties of kingdom characteristics found in obedient Christians. Let me, let me read that again. Our society today has an overpowering taste of evil in it and will only be flavored by the vastly different properties of kingdom characteristics found in obedient Christians. You know, um, one person that I, I know of in the scriptures that adds flavor to his, added flavor to his society was the Apostle Paul. And if you remember the story in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in Philippi, and they were arrested, falsely arrested. And then they were beaten with rods. And I don't know, the, the limit in the Roman uh, world was they could have been beaten 39 times, according to Roman custom. I don't think they were. But you can imagine how painful that would be. And then after that, their feet are put in stocks, their, their wrists are put in shackles, they're laid out on the ground. Can you imagine your beats all, your back is all shredded, and then you're on the, on the ground in pain. So what did the apostle do then? What he could have done, what he could have done is said, look, I'm a Roman citizen, and so is Silas. And what you just did is broke Roman law. And you need to release me right now before I get a lawyer, right? <laughs> before I lawyer up. But he didn't do that. You know what he did? He prayed, and they started singing hymns to God at midnight. Can you imagine what everybody around them would think after hearing him beaten? And then hearing them sing. It, they would think, what, what makes this guy different? What makes these two guys do this? How can they do this? And then right after they started singing, what happens? Boom! Earthquake! Prison doors open up. You know, time to escape! Time to get out of here. But they don't. They stay. Why? Because the Roman guard's ready to kill himself. Because if he loses a prisoner, he dies. According to Roman law. He dies. So they come to him and say, don't, no, 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 don't hurt yourself. And they preach the gospel to him. And guess what? He becomes a believer. He becomes a believer. Paul and Silas were a flavoring to all those who were in the prison that night in Philippi. What about you? When a trial comes in your life, do you grumble and complain? Do you cry out for your rights? Or are you a flavoring to all those around you so that they can see the characteristics of the kingdom in your life? I remember way back in college, I was at a Bible study, and there was an older gentleman there. I don't know why he was there, but I, I got to talking with him, and it, he, he had an amazing story. He was dying of cancer, but he was a flavor of Christ to all around him. He said he came to a point where he knew he was going to die, 
and it was the most freeing thing in the world to him. He no longer worried about himself, but he was more concerned about others. He no longer cared about what others thought about him, but what God thought about him. He knew where he was going to spend eternity so that he, it freed him to be a flavoring to those that he met. Well, one day as he was at the hospital getting treatment, he was going for treatment and he's walking through the parking lot and somebody's walking towards him and as he's walking towards him, the person pulls a gun on him and says, give me your wallet. And this man looks at him and he says, you know what? I've got cancer and I'm dying and I'm in constant pain all the time. And if you were to pull that trigger right now, you'd be doing me a favor because I'd go home, go home I'd go to heaven. And then he looked at him and he said, I know where I'm going when I die. Do you know where you're going when you die? Can you imagine getting an answer like that? Well, this robber didn't ever get an answer like that. He probably looked in the robber manual, you know, what do you do when somebody tells you that? Um, but he just turned in shock and just ran away. Just ran away. You know, we know where we're going. If we're a believer, we know where we're going when we die so we can live life to the fullest now as my dying friend did as the salt of the earth. Well, what we've seen so far is some Christians are a preservative for society, some are a flavoring for society, some end up the gravel under society's feet. Look at verse 13 again. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. You know, sodium chloride is a very stable substance. Um, you can't, you can't make salt, uh, take away the flavor of salt by pressurizing it, by grinding it, by doing anything to it, except for the addition of impurities, like gypsum, or other things like that. And when gypsum is added to salt, it loses its flavor, it no longer is as salty as it was, and it's only good for being thrown out on the road. And you can't throw it in the garden because it, then it will kill your plants. You can't throw it on the lawn, it will kill your lawn. So you throw it out in the road. And that's where people stomp on it, right? Jesus is here ta not talking about Christians losing their salvation in this passage, but he's talking about Christians losing their witness to the world by the addition of impurities to their life. One writer says this, with great responsibility there's often great danger. We cannot be an influence for purity in the world if we compromise our own. We cannot sting the world's conscience if we continually go against our own. And we cannot stimulate thirst for righteousness if we've lost our own. We cannot be used of God to retard the corruption of sin in the world if our lives become corrupted by sin. So how does a Christian lose their saltiness in the world? By the addition of impurities, of sin. 
Now, what I'd like to do is look at three general impurities, because you could list all kinds of sins, but let, let me list three general ones. And the first one is being unloving. Being unloving. John 13, 34 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Matthew 5, 43 and 44 says this, You've heard it said that you shall, not, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So one of the ways that we are a witness to the world is in the way that we love one another. You know, the world will know that we are Christians by our love. And also by the way we love our neighbors as ourselves and love our enemies. And if we don't love, the world sees this impurity in our lives and does not see our Christianity. Years ago, when I lived in Melbourne, Florida, I think I was a youth pastor at the time, um, I went to a pro-life rally. It was right outside of an abortion clinic. So we were on the sidewalk outside of this clinic, and people were walking up and down, a bunch of Christians from churches I knew, I knew most of the people there, and they're walking up and down this sidewalk with signs, and I was there with them, first time, you know, and I was watching what was going on, and then after a little while, we were doing nothing wrong. We were just standing on the sidewalk. It's a public sidewalk. You can do that, right, uh, in America. And so we're standing, walking on this sidewalk, and then the police come. I guess they were called. And they pushed us across the street to the other sidewalk. So we went from being next to the clinic to across the street on the other sidewalk. Now, some people got upset over that because we weren't doing anything wrong. So they got upset and started yelling at the police. And, and they yelled things like uh, murderers, accomplices to murder. And I, and I just sat there. I was like, I, I couldn't believe what was going on. And, and I was thinking to myself, what are you doing? This is so unloving. And then I, I thought, what, what are the police going to think of the church, especially, you know, non-Christians? What are they going to think of the church if you're yelling that? So I finally said something to those around me. I said, hey, they're just doing their job. You know, don't yell. Don't yell at them. And I finally just left. Can you imagine what they were thinking, though, of the church? Well, another way that we can be unloving is by wanting to stay in the salt shaker. How many of you have ever, I mean, everybody's done this. You go to put salt on your pizza and none comes out, you know, because of humidity. And it's all clumped together in that salt shaker. So what do you do? You go. <laughs> wow. Um, you go like that, right? And you, you hit that salt shaker, 
And what happens? You go like this again, and nothing comes out usually, right? Why? This is all clumped together. And many times, that's what we do in the church. We're all clumped together, and we don't come out of the salt shaker, and we never have an impact on the rotting meat because we're not coming in contact with the meat. We're not coming in contact with the meat. And many times we do that because we think, well, if, if they ever ask me a question, I wouldn't know what to say. Or if I ever get a chance, I wouldn't know what to do. Or, or we fear, fear contamination. You know, what, what, what happens if they say something bad in front of my kids? We walk by fear instead of by faith, and that drives us to be unloving towards non-Christians and even Christians sometimes. Well, the second way we lose our saltiness is through legalism. And legalism is adding to God's word with our own regulations. And usually when we add to the God's word with our own regulations, what we do is we judge others who don't live up to our regulations, right? Um, we look down on them. Years ago, when I was in the Air Force, um, a man started giving me the gospel. I've told you this story many times. You all could probably tell it yourselves. But Carlos pulled out his Bible and started preaching the gospel to me out of this huge Bible. And he played gospel music. And he started showing me on verse by verse by verse that I'm a sinner. Now, you know what? His evangelistic methodology wasn't the greatest. But what he did was he used the Bible. And he told me that I was a sinner. And he was right. At the time, I didn't agree with him. But about six months later, the Holy Spirit showed me that I should agree with him. And I did. But you know what happened a couple weeks after Carlos did that to me? Carlos's friend came around the barracks and saw us playing cards and said, you shouldn't play cards, that's sinful. And I was like, what? And you know what I did after that? I thought, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't want to have to go around telling people they can't play cards, if that's what Christianity is. You see, Carlos and his friend lost his saltiness because of his legalism. Well, the final way that we can add impurities to our life is through libertinism. Libertinism. And uh, two ways that we do that is we either water down God's word or we omit things from God's word. Many times when we're giving the gospel to a friend, we're tempted to avoid the topic of sin. You know, our friend may be an obvious sin, but we kind of avoid it because we don't want them to not like us. We don't want them to um, talk bad about us. So we avoid the topic of sin. And this is not even loving our friend, but it's more loving ourselves. Turn, keep, keep your finger here, but turn to the right and turn to John 
chapter 4, and you'll see a situation where Jesus was with the woman at the well. And you remember this story. He, he comes up to the woman at the well and he starts talking to her. And she's an immoral woman. But Jesus loves her. He's the salt of the earth right off the bat. He loves her. And she knows it because she's like, why are you even talking to me? Right? But he talks to her. The disciples are like, why are you talking to her? You know, do you know who this woman is? Right? And he talks to her. And then, let me find the passage here. I'll find it here in a second. I was using a different Bible before. There it is. The woman said to him, wait a minute, verse 19. Jesus said, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This, this you have said truly. And then the woman said, to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. So what does she do? She changes the subject entirely. Why? Because Jesus brings up her sin. Jesus brings up her sin. And he lovingly brings up her sin. He's not doing this to condemn her. He's doing this to show her need for him. And many times, we need to do the same thing. That is the loving thing to do when you're loving your neighbor is by telling them the truth so that they know and they know their need for Christ. You know, we need to be the salt of the earth to those around us by proclaiming the gospel not only with our mouths but also with our lives. In closing, there was a missionary that went to India in the 1960s, and he was a great example of a salty Christian. Uh, this missionary was with Operation Mobilization, and he went to India, and right away when he got there, he contracted tuberculosis. So he didn't learn language. And when he contracted tuberculosis, they put him into an Indian hospital a sanitarium for the poor. So here he is, an American, in a hospital with all poor Indians, and he can't speak the language. And they're looking at him thinking, this guy's a rich American. What's he doing here? And so they didn't like him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. Can you imagine that? He can't speak the language. He's sick. 
He's coughing. He's weak. He can't give the gospel to anybody because he doesn't know the language. He has tracks, Bible tracks that are in their language, and he tries to give these tracks to the people, and they don't want them. They don't want them because they say, this is rich Americans. So one night, about 2 in the morning, he wakes up coughing, and he can't stop coughing, and he looks over across the bay, and there's another man, and the man's trying to get up out of bed. And he tries to get up out of bed, and he keeps falling down. He tries to get up out of bed, and he falls down. And, and so the, the uh, missionary you know, keeps coughing, and then he goes back to sleep. Well, the next morning, he finds out why that man was trying to get out of bed. He was trying to go to the bathroom, and he, and he couldn't get up. He was so old and weak, he had tuberculosis also. So he wet the bed, causes a stench in the whole hospital. Everybody's mad at him. They have to change his sheets. And one of the nurses actually slaps the man. This is in the 1960s, okay. And so the man, the man just balls up in a, in a ball and cries. Well, the next morning, 2 in the morning, the same thing happens. The missionary wakes up. He's coughing again. The old man's trying to get out of bed. Getting, trying to get up, falls back down, tries to get up, falls back down. Finally, the missionary says, I've got to go help him. So he gets out of bed, even though he's weak as can be, walks over, picks the man up because he's real light, carries him to the bathroom, allows him to go to the bathroom, carries him back to the bed and puts him down. And the man looks at him and says in another language he can tell, thank you. Thank you. Well, the next morning at four in the morning, one of the patients comes up to this missionary and hands him a cup of hot tea and points to one of the pamphlets, the gospel pamphlets, and says, I want it. And then after that, one by one, patients come up to this missionary and ask for a copy of the gospel of John. By the end of the day, staff, nurses, patients, all have copies, and some are becoming Christians. And the amazing thing is, he says this, what did it take to reach the people with the good news of salvation in Christ? It certainly wasn't health. It definitely wasn't the ability to speak or give an intellectually moving discourse Health and the ability to communicate sensitively to other cultures and people are very important. But what did God use to open the hearts of these people to the gospel? I simply took an old man to the bathroom. I simply took an old man to the bathroom. Anyone could have done that. And you think about that. He was the salt of the earth. And that opened the door to the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for coming to this earth. We thank you that you lived amongst us sinful men. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for, though you were rich, 
For our sake, you became poor so that we might become rich through the gospel. Father, thank you for loving us and for forgiving us our sins. Help us to be bold in the presentation of the gospel. Help us not to fear what others say. Help us not to fear what others do. But help us to instead want to please you more than anything else. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.